Good morning, afternoon, or evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Little Light Devotions. Today is going to be a bit of a different formula. I know that usually I take a passage and we go through it, kind of dissect it, and we just exegetically go through the passage together and learn from God's Word. But this is a podcast, and so I believe that there are times where I should come on and just talk. And one of the issues that we're going to be discussing today well, I guess the big issue we're going to be discussing, and then little issues that transpire from that, is this idea of neo-fundamentalism. Now, this is a term that I personally coined. Uh, I'm sure someone else has used it before, but I haven't seen it. And I think it's a wonderful description to describe neo-fundamentalists. And what do I mean by neo-fundamentalists? They usually are the churches that consist of the independent fundamental Baptists. And the reason why I'm calling them neo-fundamentalists is because their fundamentals are based off of their preferences and their personal dogmas rather than their fundamentals of the faith. Any one of you who know me personally know that I've always kind of taken a different road when when it comes to theology, even from the churches that I've attended. I've attended some very, uh, very, very stereotypical, fundy IFB churches. Now, the church I attend now is an independent fundamental Baptist church, but it means it in the most literal way. Independent as in we're not part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Fundamental as in we hold to the five fundamentals of the faith and that we teach orthodoxy. And Baptist as in our ideals usually align with the ancient Baptist doctrine. Nevertheless, we are not like IFB churches in the sense of Well, in the sense of what we're going to talk about today, I guess. Because at our church, at Rosedale Baptist Church in Baltimore, Maryland, we believe and we hold to the five fundamentals of the faith. The first one being the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in the very beginning of the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Don't pay attention to the Jehovah's Witnesses who try to use that as, well, the Word was a God, because they have no actual understanding of the Greek language. I promise you the Bible over and over again points to Jesus Christ being God. I mean, several times in the book of Hebrews is even addressed. Another thing that's a fundamental of the faith is the virgin birth. This was something that was even alluded to in, I believe, Isaiah 7, where the foretelling of the Messiah being birthed by a virgin, that that happened even before the New Testament. And then we see in the New Testament, in Matthew and Luke, Uh, who give the account of the birth of Christ, how Jesus Christ was born of a virgin woman. The third fundamental of the faith is the blood atonement. The Bible even says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Jesus Christ has atoned for our sins through his shedding of, of his blood on the cross. The fourth fundamental of the faith is the bodily resurrection, and this Uh, is a fundamental because in early Christianity there was this group called the Gnostics who tried to claim that Christ wasn't a physical figure but he was just he he uh, he had had a semblance he had a semblance of physicality but he was really just a spirit and the issue with that is that if there was not a physical person that died for our sins then there was really no atonement for our sins And if there was no resurrection, then there is no salvation from sins. And this is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. If there's no resurrection, there's no salvation. And then also the inerrancy of the scriptures themselves. The Bible talks about over and over again how the word 
or the Bible is the authority for our things and our faith and practice. And a verse that's not really used for this too often, but I think that is a verse that gives uh, headway to the inerrancy of the scriptures is when Christ is talking, and I believe, I could say it's John 9, where he's talking and he says, search the scriptures and you'll find that they're talking about me. I believe that that gives us a very clear picture that God is creating a story from beginning to end revolving around the deity, the holiness of Christ and his plan for the earth. And so with all of that, if it's all given by God, they all have to be inerrant. If they are not inerrant, they are com they're coming from God, then that means God has errors, God has flaws, and that just throws a wrench into the entirety of what we believe. And so I truly believe in the inerrancy of scriptures. Nevertheless, the neo-fundamentalists, they have their own fundamentals of the faith. There's a lot more than five. Uh, and I'm getting these from a man named Chad Hayes, who is the pastor at Caesarea Baptist Church in Mansfield, Ohio. He had this post kind of blow up on Facebook a few months back talking about the things that the, quote, recovering fundamentalists are recovering from. Now, I don't always agree with everything that the recovering fundamentalist crowd brings to the table, but I do have a very strong agreement with them on taking a stance against the independent fundamental Baptist world that has laid its hands on the neck of American Christianity for over a century. So the first thing that is part of the IFB or the neo-fundamentalists, and which is what they'll be referred to from now on, the neo-fundamentalist fundamentals, is standards. Standards. And there, there's nothing deeper than that. It just says standards. And I have an issue with that because their standards can just be tra traced back to tradition. Their standards are no more than just culture playing a part in what they believe to be acceptable in church worship. Nothing that's actually biblically set. There are standards mentioned in Scripture, but none of the standards that they come up with come from Scripture. If you try to walk into these neo-fundamentalist churches and you try to walk in without a suit on or a tie, well, guess what? You're going to be looked at different. You might not be able to be a part of the church. You might not be able to take part in communion even. I've heard that one. If you're not dressed properly because your exterior just always reflects your interior, right? Right? And even then, the standards that they set are so much like, like, why are we basing our standards off of, like, modern capitalistic, I guess, traditions or modern political traditions? You know, if you serve with American governments, I believe this is still the same way across, at least federally, uh, but definitely throughout many states meetings is that if you are not dressed properly, the Speaker of the House will not call upon you to share your opinion about things. And same thing with the capitalistic world. And I'm not here to hit on capitalism. I, I would consider myself even more of a laissez-faire capitalist, but that's not what today's topic is about. But there has to be a recognition that there is a standard set by our economic world as it is today. That if you try to show up to many of these meetings, these big meetings with these bigwigs from these companies, then if you try to show up without a suit on, oh man, you're gonna get looked at. You're gonna get looked at weird. You're gonna be looked at as almost disrespectful. Why do we base our traditions off the traditions of men in the secular world? 
if we're going to be basing our things off of traditions and standards, they need to come from the Bible. And saying that if, oh, if you don't wear a suit or if you don't have these standards, then you just don't have the right spirituality. You are not really part of a church of God or that you're backsliding or something. I just have many issues with that because they can't really point to scripture. The biggest thing for me is I want always a chapter and a verse for why you believe what you believe. If you can't give me that and you can't exegetically prove to me that this is what scripture is trying to say, then I don't want to hear it. It's the biggest reason why I oppose infant baptism because they never actually have a passage that says in the New Testament church that infants are to be baptized. Now, that's a whole, totally different conversation, but infant baptism is something that a lot of the church agrees that it is acceptable, where I just totally disagree with that, because there's nothing in Scripture that says, you got to do this. There are a lot of other parts of Scripture where it says, you got to do this, but if that's not an issue, if that's not an area, then I don't. Then I just believe you're getting a baby wet. And I believe at the same time, if you're just holding on to these traditions without any biblical command, you're just holding on to a tradition and making people uncomfortable for no reason. Another fundamental to the neo-fundamentalists is modesty. And hear me out when I say this. Modesty is in scripture. I mean, we even have a passage right here in 1 Timothy 2.9. It says, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Modesty is in scripture, and that right there is defining modesty. Nevertheless, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a Baptist woman who doesn't wear a nice set of pearls or braids their hair. So are they going against scripture? No. Because what they're doing is they're not showing off. And this is what this passage is trying to say. That back in that culture, those things were not being shamefaced or sober. Those were the things that people were trying to get attention for themselves. If your clothing style just always draws attention to you and your life is not described by a sober Christian lifestyle, then that could be acting immodest. Immodesty is not just showing too much leg. It, but however, these Baptists are going to always insist that modesty mainly falls on women and that men cannot be immodest. No, I, I doubt many will say that men can't be immodest, but that it's much harder for them to be, or they at least just don't talk about it. I don't know how many times I've heard women tell other women, hey, you have to make sure that you're dressing appropriately for the boys. We don't want them to stumble. But as a guy, I've never really heard that said much to me. And I'm not trying to sit here and be some type of feminist today, because that's a whole other conversation as well. I'm just having a list of conversations that we can have at a later date. But what I am saying is that modesty is a commandment to all people in Scripture. Now, obviously, this passage was dealing with women specifically, but that's just if we're just focusing on the fact that it's addressing to women, then we're just ignoring the rest of First Timothy that deals primarily with men. So modesty is in Scripture, but when you try to make things modest or immodest that aren't really there, that's where I have an issue with that. And that comes around to the issue of pants. Because you cannot find anything in the Bible that talks about women should not wear pants, considering that pants really didn't exist back in that time. Now, the passage that these neo-fundamentalists will point to is the passage that talks about men and women being distinct in their clothing. And with that, I must say, you clearly have not seen a pair of women's pants on a man's body. Men are just built different than women. I'm not trying to say that to be divisive. I'm just saying that is the reality of it. You're going to be hard-pressed to find a man who is shaped 
just like a woman who can fit themselves into a woman's into women's genes and not have an issue with it. Like there is clearly a biological difference to a point to where wearing the opposite sex's clothes just can create issues. Obviously, that hasn't stopped liberals and the transgender movement from trying, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that dresses are only for women and that pants are only for men, because I can't see that in scripture, because there are women's pants, and you can clearly tell when a man is wearing women's pants. Just like the same thing with some shirts. You can really tell when a shirt isn't just a button-up and that's a blouse. Like, you, you, can, you can have that recognition, and you can totally tell when a blouse is on a man even if it just looks like a button-up, you can tell that there's just something not right. And that would be immodest. That would be going against the distinction between men and women, as is so-called in Scripture. But I can't see that distinction being found in things like pants or in vans. I've heard preachers go off about only men are allowed to wear vans, which I don't. I, I think vans would have an issue hearing that. Uh, but a woman wearing skating shoes or sneakers or anything else on their feet that isn't just sandals. I, I don't think that's going to be a cause of concern for God because you can't find a scripture to where it is. Another thing that the neo-fundamentalists call a fundamental is sanctity and worship. Sanctity and worship. And I'm not entirely too sure where this is going. Sanctity and worship, are they trying to say that we more on the, quote, recovering fundamentalist side, uh, do not believe in sanctity and worship? Do we not find that there is sanctity? I mean, I know some recovering fundamentalist churches that tend to even swing more Southern Baptist that are very conservative in their worship times. Like, they are very, very selective on the songs that they sing. They are incredibly careful with the way that they do certain... They won't even sing some certain hymns. Now, they'll sing modern songs, they'll sing contemporary songs even, but they have to be done a certain way or they have to have these certain lyrics and things like that because they truly believe in the sanctity of the worship service. Nevertheless, in many Baptist churches, I have never, in, in every church that I've gone to, literally the only church I have ever gone to where it's just instrumental for some special music, which I hate that term, but... It's only ever been at an independent fundamental Baptist church, a neo-fundamentalist church. And for those of you who know me personally, I am talking about Campus Church at Pensacola Christian College, where they will have just people get up there on their, on their classical stringed instruments, on their pianos, or their guitar, which they hold a very certain way so they don't look too rockerish, and they just play instruments. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Like, instrumental music is fine. I listen to instrumental music all the time. But when I'm in the worship service, I'm there to worship, not just to listen to music. And so, more often, I see the real fundamentalist hold more sanctity in worship than the neo-fundamentalist. Now, are they talking about there's no more sanctity in worship because there are different colored lights? Or because some churches use smoke machines? I can understand some churches go too far with the pyrotechnics of a church. I get that. But again, point to a passage in scripture where it's saying that your way is better than the other guys. Because even just on my own personal preference, uh, many times the way that I would do a church is more 
conservative than these neo-fundamentalist churches who say that, ah, you know, you got to do these things a certain way and we got to have our special music where a person gets up and plays one piece of just instrumental. Otherwise, this isn't the real sanctified church of God. Amen. I'm sorry. I just don't even see that in scripture. And they have all these issues when it comes to, quote, sanctity and worship, unquote, where you just don't find it in a passage in the Bible. And again, that's the biggest issue that I have. Another fundamental from the neo-fundamentalist is biblical separation. Now, this comes from the passage uh, talking about if you tell a person to correct their behavior a certain amount of times, they don't do it, then you need to separate them, you need to treat them as a publican and a heathen. All right, I'm down for that, especially when it comes to heretics. When people that are trying to propagate a certain idea within your church, you tell them a certain amount of time to stop it, they don't, they should leave. I don't have an issue with that. The problem lies where they begin separating over things that are not biblical issues. For example, and we're going to get into this point a little bit later, but I'm going to give you a preview. I was just listening to an episode from the podcast The Church Split, where these two men were kicked out of their neo-fundamentalist church for not for disagreeing with the church about the King James Bible. Not even trying to propagate a new idea within the church to not use the King James, but because they had a personal disagreement with the stance the church took on the King James Bible. I'm sorry, I just don't see how that is a foundational issue in scripture. I will kick somebody out of my church for denying the deity of Christ. I will kick somebody out of my church for denying the virgin birth. I will kick somebody out of my church for denying the blood atonement of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. I will kick somebody out of my church for denying the bodily resurrection. And I will kick somebody out of my church for denying the inerrancy of scripture. I will not kick somebody out of my church because they are wearing too short shorts to church. I will not kick somebody out of my church because they drink on their own time. I will not kick somebody out of my church if their preferences are not my preferences. And yet you see this over and over and over again, how even I was taught this at PCC, that if there's someone who's trying to, quote, undermine your authority, which means just have a different opinion, then you need to make sure that person is properly corrected or taken out of the church. And I just don't see how that's anywhere scriptural. The only times where a person is called to kick another person out of the church is when the person that deserves to be kicked out is promoting heresy. A lot of the things these neo-fundamentalists believe that want to take a stand for biblical separation on are not heretical points. And I believe this stems to the next point of ecclesiastical is separation. I'm not entirely too sure where biblical and ecclesiastical separation lie, but I believe the same mindset would, would apply to both. So the next one is kind of the biggest one that these neo-fundamentalists hold on to and something that I vehemently oppose is their position on the King James Bible. The neo-fundamentalists love this translation more than any other translation. In fact, so much so they believe it's the only version that English-speaking people should ever use. In fact, this could even extend so far into an ideology called Ruckmanism, where they believe that the King James Bible is the final Bible, as in it's superior to the original Hebrew and Greek, and that all translations that go into the rest of the world should be translated not out of the original languages, but out of the King James Bible. Obviously, most neo-fundamentalists don't hold to Ruckmanism, but there obviously are that do, and I really don't think any further explanation needs to be done why that's a stupid ideology. 
but many do, many are basically a half a step away. With like, well, it's not the inspired word of God, but it was a really inspired trans translation, and it's just done so well, we shouldn't have to use anything else, and all these other issues they try to bring up about textual criticism that they just ignore on their own. Again, the podcast I mentioned earlier, The Church Split, has a wonderful multi-part series talking about the King James Bible and why the neo-fundamentalists get the whole thing all wrong. But usually it just comes down to they are just so historically ignorant. They're so historically ignorant. They will focus so much on one thing like, oh, this manuscript came from here, and this is the one of the manuscripts that they use in their textual criticism, so that means we're right. Nevertheless, they don't ever look at the fact that Erasmus actually used textual criticism himself when compiling the Textus Receptus, the Greek manuscript in which the King James is based off of. So I'm not entirely too sure where this idea of Erasmus was just given this holy knowledge of knowing exactly what to put in there. If he had the opportunity to use the other manuscripts that were available to the people 500 years later then he definitely would have. He just didn't. He just took all that he could and did his best work on it, and then those who were translating the King James were in the similar situation. They did their best work. The King James is a great translation. The Texas Receptus is not a bad compilation of the Greek manuscripts. Am I willing to sit here and say it's the only one that's even viable to use in the church? No! They have no understanding of textual history. They have no understanding of how the textual criti uh, criticism process works. They just hear the word textual criticism, and they just freak out. Do I even agree with all the arguments made by textual critics? No. But would I even remotely go into the side of the King James is the only way that we can have a church service done? No, because even if you want to use just Texas Receptus, that's fine. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to knock you for that. I can totally understand that. But why, this, why the King James? Why not the New King James or the Modern English Version? Like, these are versions that are in our modern vernacular and that are still done in the formal equivalency of the formal equivalency translation style, where it's more word for word. I get that not every church has to use an NIV or an ESV, because those two versions are a little bit too dynamically equivalent for my taste. But that doesn't mean that it's wrong to do so. It's my preference to not use those, even in my own personal worship. I really tend to stay away from the ESV, which is kind of taking over the Christian world right now. I'd rather stick with the KJV over the ESV, and I'll to be all personal with you. But I'm not going to sit here and say that it is the only one, or that it even should be treated as such. I think that that is a real, real problem. And that's probably one of the biggest things that the neo-fundamentalists have stuck their stake in the ground in concerning even just tradition. They, they are so deep into this that they won't listen to other preachers that use a different version. They are so pharisaical when it comes to this idea that, and I don't mean to use that term flippantly, but it's just exactly what it is. They are taking traditions and elevating it to doctrine. And this is no more evident than in the issue of the King James Bible to neo-fundamentalists. I cannot and will not ever support the idea that one, the Textus Receptus is the only viable Greek manuscript or collection of Greek manuscripts. 
And two, I cannot agree that even if we're going to use the TR for the translation basis, that the King James is the only translation to come out of that that is a good translation to use. You can have your opinions about the NKJV or the MEV, but saying as if it's the only one and acting like those people that use the NKJV or the MEV don't also have similar critiques to the KJV that stand up, I mean, like, it's just intellectually dishonest. Being completely transparent, I would rather use the MEV nine times out of ten when it comes to the KJV. Sure, the KJV is very poetic, so I love reading the Psalms out of it, and it's beautiful, I get that. But if I'm trying to expound on the scripture and read it to somebody so that they can understand, especially to a kid or to somebody who's not as full in their mental capacities, I'm not going to use the King James. Because just like how Mark Ward says over and over again, edification requires intelligibility. And I know he got that from scripture, but he uses that tagline over and over and over again in his book, Authorize the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible, which is a wonderful book to study this topic on. So I could belabor that point for hours upon hours upon hours, and I have in the past, and I'm sure I will again with some buddies of mine who go to PCC who do attain to this, uh, this doctrine of King James onlyism whether it's King James onlyism light or King James onlyism Ruckmanism, uh, I will have this conversation for hours, but I just don't think we have the time today. So take some study on that for your own time. If you come out to where you just prefer the King James, that's fine. You can totally do that. But I do not want to hear anybody saying that the King James is the only viable translation because you cannot back that up by scripture or by history. So another fundamental that the neo-fundamentalists love to use is the hymn book. The hymn book, or just hymns in general, you know? Especially when it comes to the hymn book, those are definitely more primitive Baptist churches. I have one just up the road here from me where they just only use hymn books. And they don't even use the 1789 revision of the King James. They use the 1611, the one with the weird spelling and all that. Goodness, I don't understand how they do that. There's no, there's no intelligibility. There's no edification. But when it comes to hymn books, again, this is just a tradition people are just holding on to because they think older is therefore better. And I just have an issue with that. There is nothing that gives way in scripture or even just psychologically as to how older is just better and how something on paper is better than it being on a screen. Now, I understand the appeal to it. In all honesty, I would rather read from the Bible out of a physical Bible. But when I'm studying, preparing sermons, I use all digital because it's just easier to manage. But when I'm reading for my own personal edification, I use a physical Bible. When I'm singing at a church service, I'd prefer to have the words be on the screen for ease of access. But it, but I do own a hymn book that I will read out of for my own personal edification, and I read that out of a physical hymn book. Because to me, personally, that is where I get more personal edification from. But I think ecclesiastically, to help people that don't really know how to use a hymn book that well, or just to save from people rustling around in pages for 10 seconds as they try to find the song, just put the words on the screen. There's nothing in the Bible that says against it. Another fundamental that the neo-fundamentalists try to claim that the recovering fundamentalists don't have is preaching. Listen, I have never gone <laughs> to a more contemporary church and not heard great preaching. I've gone to a lot of neo-fundamentalist churches, and I've heard some absolutely God-forsaken awful preaching. I will never forget how many times I've heard political sermons come out of the pulpits from men that are trying to expound the Word of God. 
I'm not trying to say that preachers shouldn't be political, but the pulpit is your time to expound on the word of God, not give me your Republican talking points. I have been more edified by the preaching at contemporary churches from recovering fundamentalist churches much more often than I have been at neo-fundamentalist churches. Another fundamental that these neo-fundamentalists love to point out is the old paths. Amen. The old paths is just basically the early 1900s to the 1950s, when everything was all right with the world and there was clearly nothing going on that could even remotely give uh, some uncomfortable feelings. Obviously, I'm being a little bit facetious, one of the biggest things that the neo-fundamentalists back in the day used to propagate very heavily was systemic racism, segregation. And that's something that even promotes today. I'll never forget a story that my pastor, Pastor Scott Toole, told me when he was looking for a church to pastor in the 1990s. We, he uh, got a call from this church and they were doing an on-the-phone interview. They asked him, hey, what would you do if a black person came in and got saved at the church and wanted to get involved? And he was like, I would, you know, welcome him in, get him baptized, get him into the church, have him start serving. And they're like, well, we send them to this church down the road that's made for people like them. And I will never forget how much that hurt my soul just to hear. Oh, my goodness. The old paths are not great paths. The time where the old paths where they focus on were just not great times, especially when it comes to moral issues. Trying to use the old paths as something to be like, ah, oh, this was such a great time for Christianity. I'm sorry, every single period of Christianity will always have something debilitating with it. It just will. Because people are infallible. There was no time that was better than another. Because you can look back and be like, oh, people back then, they just read out of hymns and their King James Bible and they respected the preacher, amen. But you wouldn't see a single black person coming to your church, otherwise they would get beat to death. So quite frankly, I don't really care what your old paths look like. If it's not following the word of God, I don't want to hear it. And this next fundamentalist point, which we've already kind of hit on earlier from the neo-fundamentalists, is their Baptist heritage and tradition. Again, going over heritage and tradition. I don't care what your heritage and your tradition is. If you want to keep your own traditions, cool, but recognize them as traditions and don't push them on anybody else. Another point that they love to use, which racks my brain and I'll never understand it, is the fundamentalist, the neo-fundamentalist point of the men of God. How that's one of their foundational things. Let me tell you, if you are saved, you are a man of God. A person behind the pulpit is not more of a man of God than you. He is an under-shepherd. He is just a sheep that's leading the other sheep. There is no special man of God. A man of God is a saved person. You could even incorporate that to woman of God if you would be so inclined. If you are saved, you are of God. Therefore, you are a man of God. You are are not subjugated to the authority of a pastor like he is your father or your husband. You're just not. This podcast called 26 Letters gives a wonderful presentation of this refutation of the man of God. I really haven't heard in person many sermons revolve around the man of God or revere him to such a status, but I know that that happens a lot and I've heard some horror stories. So go check out 26 Letters episode about the man of God. 
another thing that I don't understand this point. Another thing that the neo-fundamentalists try to use against the recovering fundamentalists is that they have the, quote, fundamental of parents that discipline them. I have seen some downright harsh parents on the recovering fundamentalist side. They are strict and good. You know, strict parents are good parents. You don't have to be a jerk to your kids, and you shouldn't be a jerk to your kids. That's what the Bible even condemns that. But be strict. Have standards. Raise your kid right. Raise your kid in the admonition of the Lord. Deuteronomy talks about this. Whether you're sitting down, rising up, walking throughout your day, always make sure you're pointing to the Lord. Like This is something that's been ancient times, that parents need to discipline their kids. I have an issue with the way neo-fundamentalists uh, discipline their kids is that if their kid starts to wander away from the path that they want them to go on, then they stop talking to them, don't try to help them, they just yell at them, and then that, apparently that's discipline. That's not discipline, that's being a jerk. If you want to properly discipline your child, that involves love, care, proper attention to their feelings. I know, feelings, what an absolutely liberal thing to say, but that's essential to being a good parent. And I've seen so many more good parents on the recovering fundamentalist side than I've seen with your neo-fundamentalists. I have heard of so many kids at my college who they won't even, they're not even allowed to go back home. Like they have to stay at PCC during this, like in between semesters or over summer because their parents won't let them come back home. What the frick is that? That's not being a good parent. That's being a jerk. And I see that happen so often with the neo-fundamentalists. Another thing that is basically essential to being a neo-fundamentalist church is having some tiny Christian school that, quote, disciplined them and had standards. I am so sorry, but what? Like, Christian schools are a strange phenomenon. Like, yes, they're good to have, but oh my goodness, they are so usually underdeveloped, undercooked. It, it's, it's appalling. If you're going to have a proper Christian school, you can't just throw up a building, throw some random assistant, like assistant pastor's wife in there who knows some basic things about arithmetic and then call it a day and just tell her to have at it. That's not Christian schooling. Thankfully, I grew up in a Christian school that was proper. Obviously, it had its flaws. But it was much more proper than so many itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny Christian schools that I see from these neo-fundamentalist churches. And again, the thing back with standards, there was this chick that I knew, and she was telling me that at her school, they would make the girls line up on the daily outside, like on in one of the hallways, they would make them kneel by the wall, and if their skirt didn't touch their knee, they got sent home. I'm sorry, that's just not a standard, that's just being stupid and wasting your time. It is. Another thing that uh, these fundamentalists really love to stake their claim in is churches that take a stand, which... To a neo-fundamentalist just means a church that gets politically involved whenever June rolls around and the gay prides start coming out. Or a church that takes a political stance when election season rolls around. Taking a stand does not involve politics. It could involve politics, but that's not all that it involves. And yet these neo-fundamentalist churches revolve their identity so much around Donald Trump or the Republican Party or conservatism politically or anti this and pro that they have such like it's good to take a stand on these things being anti-abortion that's a wonderful stand that a christian should take and a church should take i get that not propagating homosexuality that should be something that a church does they should not propagate homosexuality as something acceptable by god but at the same time that's not 
taking a stand, and that shouldn't be the thing you revolve your identity around. And if a church doesn't want to take as hard of a stance or try to get involved in politics as much as another church does, that's fine. That's fine. I'm going to have a political episode coming up sometime soon where I will develop more into this idea of explicitly why I'm saying why I'm saying that. Because some of you might have heard that and been like, well, I don't know if I agree with all that. I promise you I have another episode coming down the line where I'll explain myself further regarding that. But that's that's going to be a point that takes a while. Another thing these neo-fundies love is their Bible colleges and their seminaries that, quote, take a stand. They're always about their taking stands. I go to a neo-fundamentalist Bible college, and it is not all that great. <laughs> I have so many problems with that place. They so often lack any type of mercy or Christian character. They use the Bible as a bludgeoning tool instead of something that... And because they have the right people that come in front of the camera screens, they're just like, oh, well, the, it can't be that bad. Look at Dr. Shoemaker. Look at how sweet he is on stage. You know, never mind the fact that he's kind of a jerk person to person. Or how about Dr. Redland? Oh, he's just such a great guy on stage. And Dr. Redland's genuinely a sweet man. I actually really like Dr. Redland as a person. And theologically, he seems to be a little bit not as in line as Neo-Fundy as the previous generations of PCC were. But it's just because he isn't a person I personally have a problem with, doesn't negate from the fact that these Bible colleges, not just PCC, but especially Hiles Anderson or West Coast or any other Bible college for that matter, these places are so often full of corruption, full of greed, full of sweeping things under the rug, full of just power trips, power-hungry people. Oh my goodness, it is insane. And it is full of a lack of mercy, of compassion, of even biblical rules. A lot of times what also hurts the credibility of these places is they hand out these honorary doctorates like they're candy. Goodness. A Bible college of 100 people shouldn't be giving away honorary doctorates to somebody they like. I'm sorry, but if I ever receive one of those, even if it's from PCC, I'm just going to toss it in the trash, put it in a desk somewhere, not even hang it up. Goodness. I loved when the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast was doing their meetup together and they started giving away <laughs> they started giving away um, honorary doctorates to the people that showed up. And I thought that was the fun. I, I would hang that one up because that's from somebody I respect. Nevertheless, I really don't respect these Bible colleges. I don't respect a lot of these seminaries. Sure, these places can be teaching a lot of times more sound doctrine than others, than other very liberal institutions. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to be I'm going to have this respect for them because so many times they do so many things that are antithetical to scripture that there have been times I've thought about leaving the place where I'm at because it's been so hypocritical to the word of God. And there are dozens of stories I could share about that, but we're running out of time. The last thing, the last thing that this post says is that these recovering fundamentalists are recovering from hurt feelings because they couldn't handle thus saith the Lord with power and conviction from on high. Again, this kind of goes back to the whole man of God thing. They believe that just because a preacher says something and then says thus saith the Lord after it, like that, that just holds more weight than it did before. If anything, that's blaspheming the name of God. You don't get to use the power of the Lord's name behind such a flimsy little statement like something around pants or neckties or colored suits or segregation in the church. I don't care what little phrase you add after your stupid statement. 
it doesn't make it any more powerful. If anything, it condemns you more for using the holy name of our Lord in vain. Let me tell you, if you are involved with a church that has hurt people and you don't care a lick about it because you're serving the man of God, amen, or you are the man of God, let me tell you, you are a disgrace to Christianity. You are a disgrace to the cross. You are a disgrace to my Lord Jesus. People have feelings. God has feelings. We're created in the image of God, so we have feelings. And if you don't care about that, if you don't care about that, you do not know God. Because he that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. And love is something that the neo-fundamentalists can't get their head around. They can get their head around lust because every other week there's a pastor getting busted for fornicating with another woman or watching porn or doing something with kids. But they can't understand love because their theology just can't, just can't accept it. I know today was a longer one. But before I leave, I want y'all to know that I don't have an issue with neo-fundamentalists themselves. I have an issue with their theology. But if a person were to ever repent of some heretical doctrines that these neo-fundamentalists hold on to, hey, I would accept them with loving and open arms. I don't think they'd do the same for me if I ended up going to their side. <laughs> but I will always hug a neo-fundy, no matter who they are. Because if they affirm the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, then they're a brother. They're a brother I got a lot of beef with, but they're a brother. God bless you. I love you guys. See you next time. Thank you so much for tuning in to Little Light Devotions. I know there's probably a lot on your plate, so it means a lot we could take this time together and just talk. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find all of my social media info and business information on linkapp.com slash AC underscore LL. That's L-I-N-Q-A-P-P dot A-C underscore L-L. Again, thank you so much for listening. I pray God blesses your day and your future. God bless you. I love you. See y'all next time.